The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. You know, the dam's destruction has left about 94% of irrigation systems in Kherson without water, about 74% in Zaporizhia Oblast, and about 30% in Dnipro Oblast. So, you know, it's going to have a really, really significant impact on, on this part of southern Ukraine. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, June 8th, 2023. A large dam on the Dnieper River has been destroyed, causing massive flooding and a dangerous environmental catastrophe in southern Ukraine. The Ukrainians are blaming the Russians. The Russians are blaming the Ukrainians. Meanwhile, The Washington Post is reporting that the CIA was actually tipped off about the coming destruction of the Nord Stream pipelines last year, and that it was tipped off that a Ukrainian military team was planning to do it. The blockbuster story is the latest bit of evidence that the Nord Stream operation was, after all, not the Russians, but the Ukrainians. Joining me in the Jungle Studio, virtual and in person, to discuss all the goings-on are Eric Charamella, Senior Fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and a former CIA analyst and NSC official on Russia and Ukraine, Dmitry Alperovich, Chairman of the Silverado Policy Accelerator, and Shane Harris, one of the reporters whose name is on that Washington Post story byline. We covered a lot of ground on this podcast in three separate conversations. I talked with Charamella about the scope and scale of the damage the dam break has done. I talked to Alperovich about the military implications of the dam break And I talked to Harris about his story and what it all means for the future of the Ukraine war. It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 8th, Dam Breaks and Pipeline Bombings. All right, so I want to start with just some general information about this dam. People heard a bit about this when when there was concern about it a a year or so ago, 
at the time the nuclear power plant was was up upstream was was under attack what is the significance of this dam and why is it a a significant feature of the conflict right now sure thanks ben so uh, this dam was uh, built by the Soviets and opened in 1956, and it's part of a series of uh, six dams, reservoirs, and uh, power plants that span across the Dnipro River, and it's the southern, most southerly of the six. Um, the series called the Dnipro Cascade. It starts around Kiev and flows downstream. And just for those who don't know, the Dnipro is a huge river and is the uh, uh, since the Viking times has been the kind of waterway for, through Ukraine from down to the Black Sea. Exactly. So the purpose of this dam was to. Uh, first, prevent flooding. Um, there had been a series of, of pretty significant floods um, in the early 1900s, and so the Soviets, Soviets built this dam system to try and control water flows. Uh, the second purpose is to generate electricity through hydropower, and the third uh, is to regulate water flow uh, for agricultural irrigation and industrial use and municipal water supply. So the Kahovka Reservoir, uh, which was just north of the dam, was about the size of the Great Salt Lake in Utah, so a pretty substantial body of water. Um, another important feature of this dam was that, um, you know, the reservoir that it dammed up was supplying about 85% of Crimea's water via the North Crimean Canal, which since the Russian annexation in 2014, uh, the Ukrainian government had, had diverted uh, and blocked, which had led to a series of droughts in Crimea. And there was some, you know, debate through the years about whether the Russians would try to seize, you know, a certain part of Kherson Oblast in order to restore water supply. So, you know, early on in the invasion, uh, this one was one of the, you know, initial targets that the Russian, uh, you know, military occupied back in February 2022. And the dam did previously suffer some damage uh, during the Russian withdrawal from Kherson back in November. There's been, as you mentioned, uh, a lot of concern uh, from the Ukrainian side that the Russians had mined the dam. There was, uh, you know, a lot of public debate about this last fall, and the Ukrainians have been, you know, calling for for everyone to pay attention to this. Um, another kind of important thing to keep in mind, as you mentioned, upstream we have the uh, the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, which gets its cooling water from the reservoir. Um, although IAEA chief Rafael Grossi has said uh, that there doesn't seem to be an immediate risk to the plant safety because there are some alternative water sources. You know, when we think about a dam breaking in this country, there results local flooding, there results, you know, uh, some environmental damage, but it's not a kind of national catastrophe. The way that the pictures of this look, it seems like an extremely big deal uh, for the people in Kherson and north of Kherson in the floodplain and also uh, leaving aside the military uh, implications uh, as this river is the border right now or the front line between the Russians and the, and, and the Ukrainian forces. It seems like a way bigger deal than it 
than a dam break in the United States is. I, I suppose we haven't had one at the Grand Coulee Dam or the Hoover mm -hmm. Dam or something. But like, is this as big a deal as it seems? Yes, definitely. I mean, this is this is a pretty catastrophic situation from you know humanitarian, economic, agricultural, and ecological standpoints. Uh, it's going to have pretty far-reaching implications for you know, Ukraine's economic future, but also for the livelihoods of folks in southern Ukraine who have already been suffering tremendously since the invasion started. So what do we know? I, I know the Ukrainians said, although I haven't looked recently, they said that amazingly nobody had been killed. What do we know about the scope and scale of the damage at this point? I think it's still too soon to say uh, there's still, you know, a major disaster response ongoing, um, still evacuations, many people stranded, um, you know, the elderly, um, disabled, and, you know, the Ukrainian government is trying to get to them. You know, there's going to be kind of a cascade of effects from this. Um, drinking water has been now cut off to, you know, potentially hundreds of thousands of people. You have to worry about chemicals and other toxins and fuel spilling into the water, um, the spread of waterborne disease. You've got minefields that have now been, you know, swept away and are flowing in unpredictable directions. You've got electricity down for a significant chunk of southern Ukraine now. And like you said, it's all happening in an active war zone. So this, you know, huge kind of crisis response is is having to take into account the fact that they're going into, you know, active areas of shelling. So I look at this and I... I know there is some history of blowing dams, you know, during the during the Soviet period in World War II of blowing dams along the Dnipro to stop the 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 Nazis. What do we? The Ukrainians seemed very worried that this was going to happen. Uh, what do we know about the? I, I, I'm going to come to the attribution aspect of it later, but. Is this worse or about what was expected when people talked about what would happen if if this if this came to pass if there was a break in this dam? Well, based on my understanding, you know there had been a lot of mod modeling done last fall when this kind of first emerged as a potential um, scenario. But what wasn't anticipated was the really unprecedentedly high water levels due to, you know, significant rains over the past month. Uh, and so, you know, it seems like the immediate effects in terms of, you know, flooding and whatnot are, are even vaster than was predicted. All right. So what do we know about the event itself? Leave aside uh, who did it, which again, we'll come to. Normally, a dam like this does not break on its own. Uh, there has been some discussion that this was internally mined as opposed to hit with a missile. What, if anything, do we know about what happened 36 hours ago? I would say that we still know very little about the exact circumstances. And, you know, my my former colleagues who are, you know, back in the IC are no doubt looking at you know, all the information they're getting to try and piece together uh, exactly what happened because, you know, again, what happened gives you clues as to whether or how it's part of a, a strategy, you know, potentially by the Russian side. So, you know, I've seen different kinds of explanations, including, uh, you know, everything from an intentional attack to, you know, 
negligence on the side of the Russians to, you know, a mistake in terms of how it was timed and maybe it was supposed to be timed later. I mean, this is all kind of going around in different telegram channels. I think in a cosmic sense, I mean, it's obviously clear that this is, you know, Russia's fault in the sense that there was no threat to this dam prior to February 2022. Uh, And so they have created a scenario in which this critical infrastructure is at risk. Um, and, And you've obviously seen what they've been doing to the rest of Ukraine in terms of hitting critical infrastructure. But, you know, I would kind of I would urge folks to exercise a bit of caution about, you know, the exact circumstances of what happened and trying to draw out what it means kind of in a strategic sense, because we still don't really know yet. And I think we'll we'll learn more in the coming days and weeks. So I want to ask, um, tack back to this Washington Post story about the Nord Stream attack, not because I'm going to ask you about the intelligence reporting that Shane, who we'll speak to later in this conversation, uh, delivers, but because the overarching point of that story is that this uh, attack on Nord Stream, which uh, a lot of people, including U.S. government officials at the time in public, uh, didn't attribute to the Russians, but were you know openly hinting that this was a Russian attack. Actually, turns out looks like it may have been U- Ukrainian military, and the U.S. may have had a considerable heads up about its happening. And so all of that makes me look at this incident and say everything about this says to me the Russians blew this dam and yet I want to be careful because I was – I wouldn't say almost as equally confident but almost as confident that the Russians uh, were trying to starve the Germans of natural gas by way of getting them off off the Ukraine train you know, back when Nord Stream 1 and 2 blew. And so I, I guess I, I want to ask you to speculate a little bit about whether there's any chance in your mind that the Ukrainians would do this to themselves. You know, I mean, to me, it, it seems like a really, really unlikely scenario of a deliberate Ukrainian attack. Again, this is, you know, they had a very good understanding that this would be catastrophic, you know, for their people. And they have every intention to, you know, liberate their citizens and this land from occupation and uh, have no reason to preemptively destroy uh, land that they intend to, you know, retake and to govern and to, you know, have be agriculturally and economically productive. I would say, you know, on the broader point, it tends to be the case that the simplest and most logical explanation is usually true, at least in this war. I mean, there's been all this kind of race to speculate about, you know, insane false flag conspiracy theories when drones blow up on, you know, atop the Kremlin or what have you. Uh, you know, I think in 99% of cases, the simplest explanation is probably right, which is that when stuff blows up inside Russia— or a major Russian economic asset like Nord Stream blows up, it seems likely that that is Ukraine trying to take the war to the Russians. It's perfectly logical from a military calculus standpoint. And when stuff blows up in Ukraine, you know, including critical infrastructure and, and huge economic assets, you know, there's a decent chance that that's uh, Russia's, you know, doing. And so, again, I think it's it's too soon to tell precisely what happened in this scenario, how deliberate it was, but... You know, certainly the kind of 
you know, rational explanation points more in one direction than the other. Right. And the the explanation with respect to Nord Stream that led people, including me, to suspect that it may have been the Russians actually looked much better prospectively than it does retrospectively in the sense that if it had been some, you know, some effort to, you know, play the victim while starving Europe of of natural gas, it was spectacularly unsuccessful, mm-hmm. whereas as an attack on Russian export now capacity with in natural gas it was quite effective right uh so one of the areas that you mentioned as a potential major damage is agriculture which is of course this is the breadbasket of europe etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, and this is actually one of the major agriculturally productive regions uh, how bad is it for the future of Ukrainian agriculture that we have, you know, a toxic flood in this area. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the full extent of the agricultural damage is is obviously hard to assess right now. You have sort of two stages of of damage here, the initial flooding, you know, of of croplands in the immediate vicinity, but then you have, you know, high likelihood of long-range crop failures because um you know, this dam and reservoir system provided irrigation for about half a million acres of farmland that were producing a significant amount of, you know, sunflowers for sunflower oil, um, grain, vegetables, various sorts. I saw some uh, statements by the Ukrainian Agricultural Ministry saying that, you know, the dam's destruction has left about 94% of irrigation systems in Kherson without water, about 74% in Zaporizhia Oblast, and about 30% in Dnipro Oblast. So, you know, it's going to have a really, really significant impact on on this part of southern Ukraine. And that's before you get to the question of toxifying, you know, if if you have major chemical spills, which you will uh, in the context of this flooding, uh, all of a sudden you have a question of the usability of the water once it's restored. Exactly. And you have a huge, you know, disruption to to the ecosystems of southern Ukraine, you know, you're going to have large die-offs of, you know, fish and other animals. Um, and again, it's it's really hard to predict kind of the cascade of effects that's going to play out probably over years. Do we know anything at this stage about what it would take to stabilize the situation? I mean, obviously, you'd have to build some kind of temporary dam or some kind of water diversion uh, has the Ukrainian government had anything to say about what that would look like? Yeah, I haven't seen anything on that yet. I mean, everything seems to be focused on the immediate disaster response, you know, and evacuating local communities. I haven't seen anything on a kind of replacement structure. And the evacuations are taking place with the Russians in control of one side of the mm-hmm. river and under shelling, what do we know about the conditions in which, first of all, people on the other side of the river, uh, I'm not really concerned about Russian soldiers, but I am concerned about, you know, Ukrainian civilians on the other side of the river. What What is happening with their evacuations on the Russian side? And also, to what extent are the Russians harassing the uh, evacuation and rescue efforts with shelling? 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's a there's a huge asymmetry in terms of what we know. The Ukrainian government has been pretty transparent about their evacuation operations that are underway. Um, you know, on on their side of the river, um, you've also got a huge, you know, vibrant grassroots community of civil society organizations that are rushing to help. On the Russian occupied side, there's just a lot less information, um, you know, because of kind of media blackouts, um, and we just we know very little about what's going on there. There's been some kind of reporting about local message boards and a lot of, you know, sense of desperation that they're not being, you know, helped on an urgent basis by the occupation authorities. Um, and so, again, this is, you know, it's an enormous tragedy for for all these people who have been living, you know, in in war conditions now for more than a year to deal with something, you know, like losing their homes and livelihoods just in a blink of an eye. So let's turn now to the military side of the equation. Joining me to discuss the military implications of the dam break is Dmitry Alperovich. All right, so let's start with the question of attribution. How clear to you is it that this is likely a Russian uh, operation or mistake or but that the the destruction of the dam is the result of Russian activity rather than what the Russians are claiming, which is that it's Ukrainian activity. I don't think it's clear at all. I mean, at one level, of course, this is Russian activity because they started this war that led to this. So they are ultimately responsible, no question about it. Uh, but I do think that from a intent perspective, this action doesn't actually benefit Ukraine or Russia. Uh, from a Ukrainian perspective, this has been obviously a humanitarian disaster and uh, economic disaster and ecological disaster, not just to the future of their country, uh, but to the directly to the areas they occupy today, which is the right bank of the river, the, the western bank that they currently hold, the city of Kherson, which is now partly flooded. Uh, but the same is true for the Russians. Um, this benefits them in no way because their positions are being flooded. They're actually uh, having to relocate from those positions right now. The cities that they're occupying, the villages, I should say, not really cities, are getting flooded as well. And perhaps most importantly, uh, this is likely going to create major issues in Crimea because the water supply to Crimea, which was really, really important to them, you may recall that Literally two days after the invasion, one of the very first things that they did is blow up the dam in the Crimean Canal that supplied the water to Crimea before 2014. And, and then um, after Russian illegal takeover of Crimea, the Ukrainians built this um, temporary dam that blocked that water supply. The very first thing the Russians did is blow it up to enable the water to flow back again. Well, that canal is now in danger because once the water levels drop, and they're dropping precipitously already, you're not going to have any water flow into Crimea. And that's going to make much of Crimea, once again, really not sustainable for agriculture. It's going to create uh, a number of issues there. Uh, not existential issues. They, they do have other water reservoirs in Crimea, but it's going to be really, really impactful. And obviously, Crimea is really important politically and historically for Putin. So I actually think that this was likely unintentional, uh, potentially, this kind of occurred on its own. Uh, the dam has sustained some damage last fall. Uh, there were strikes that were executed against that dam by both Ukraine and Russia. 
during the fight for her song. Um, there was a bridge that was going over that dam. So the Ukrainians were hitting that bridge with HIMARS to try to impact Russian logistics. And then when the Russians withdrew, they blew up that bridge. And because of those hits and, and um, uh, the explosives that the Russians were, were using, very likely there was uh, some significant damage to that dam. So it could be that the cumulative effect of, of that damage has triggered uh, you know, a break and, and uh, the water was able to rush through and expand from there. And once that happens with dams, you know, it's Small game over. Small breaks become big breaks. Very quickly, that's right. Uh, the other option is that this could be one of the mines that the Russians have put up all along their uh, left coast, um, their eastern coast of the river, that it uh, fell into the river, maybe more than one, and floated downstream, hit the dam, and exploded and contributed to this as well. I actually posted a video on Twitter of uh, this very thing occurring uh, some hours after the dam had already been destroyed, uh, but it, it was a video that was posted on one of the Russian Telegram channels of, of a Russian soldier coming out of his trench and filming an explosion, an underwater explosion that looks like it was a floating mine, almost certainly a Russian mine that broke off and, uh, and detonated. So you could have had something like that take place. It's also possible that maybe some low-level person decided to execute this action. I just find it hard to believe that senior leadership either on the Russian side or in the Ukrainian side, would order this because it doesn't actually gain you anything from a military perspective. No one actually believed that the Ukrainians would launch some sort of major amphibious assault, a la D-Day, uh, against the left bank as part of this counteroffensive. So this doesn't actually hurt them that much in terms of uh, not being able to do that. And uh, the Russians never had uh, significant numbers of forces on that side of the river either. So flooding them doesn't help the Ukrainians. So just one of those things that I think is terrible for everyone involved, of course, most most importantly, the civilians and uh, the agricultural and ecological disaster that's going to come from this um, potentially for many months, if not years. But I don't think that um, it's likely that um, someone in Kiev or Moscow ordered it. So there's one factor that you left out, which I uh, just want to ask you about, which is, you know, the Russians are doing all kinds of things in the way of attacking civilians and attacking civilian infrastructure, uh, like apartment buildings that don't have, that don't give them any military advantage. Why uh, should I not look at this and interpret it as, hey, they're going to they anticipate having to withdraw from this area uh, because they believe rightly or wrongly that the counteroffensive is going to be uh, substantial and effective. And so this is a kind of vindictive effort to uh, penalize civilians, both by flooding their homes and by, you know, making areas that are normally agriculturally productive toxic and unproductive? Well, because it's the areas that they control. And the Russians themselves have been saying for many months how their bank of the river, the one that they currently occupy, is lower than the Ukrainian bank of the river. So the flooding is much worse on their end. And they've been talking about the impact that Crimea would suffer as a result of this. So they're fully aware of the consequences and that they would be hurt much more than the Ukrainians by this action and gain very little from it. So could they have engaged in a, in a self-destructive um, 
dumb action like this, I guess it's possible. I just don't think it's particularly likely, especially given they may not care about these occupied areas. They may treat, you know, the population there as ultimately Ukrainians that they need to suppress and terrorize and torture. Uh, But they do care about Crimea. They care about Crimea a lot. They care about Crimean water supplies. And I find it hard to believe that someone senior in Moscow would take this action to jeopardize it. All right. So uh, at the end of the day here, your early bet is on an accident. An accident or maybe someone low level uh, in probably the Russian military taking this action without getting approvals, but but probably an accident. All right. So let's talk about the military implications here. This starts, uh, this takes place against a backdrop of the beginning of, or the noises about anyway, the beginning of the Ukrainian counteroffensive. What do we know about the Ukrainian operations so far? And how does this interact with them other than provide a major distraction from them? So, by the way, it's a distraction for both sides because the Russians are having to evacuate their forces. The Ukrainians are dealing with evacuation of civilians in Kherson. So it absolutely has impact on, on, on both sides to some extent. Although, you know, from a military perspective, probably not very significant because the brigades that have been trained by Western forces, equipped for this counteroffensive missions, are probably not engaging in humanitarian relief efforts right now, but are preparing or actually executing this counteroffensive. And the counteroffensive has begun, likely started on Monday, with the initial reconnaissance and force attempts all across the entire front line, uh, particularly in the south, from the Zaporizhia Oblast going all the way to southern Donetsk, uh, kind of north of um, uh, Mariupol. And you also have, although it's probably not part of the, the actual main counteroffensive efforts, still pretty heavy fighting happening around Bakhmut and uh, in, in the Luhansk Oblast to the north in uh, Svatova Kremina line, where you've had fighting really ongoing since that uh, famous counteroffensive that was successful that the Ukrainians had executed in the Kharkiv Oblast that brought them to that line. And what the Ukrainians are trying to find is weaknesses in the Russian line. Um, they're doing these armored assaults on villages and uh, attempting to discover where the Russian artillery is and doing counter-battery fire and seeing where they can make progress. And likely, once they identify it, they can flow most of their reserve forces in and try to achieve a breakthrough. Um, again, all of that is really land-based operations and quite far away from the river. So um, the flooding is really not affecting the, those operations at all. Uh, one interesting thing that people are, are not really paying as much attention to as I think they should is the Bakhmut area. So famously, after nine months or so of fighting for Bakhmut and really leveling the city, Wagner, Prigozhin's Wagner, did take it. And the first thing that uh, Prigozhin did after taking it is promptly withdraw and uh, bring his forces back to training camps. And I think the reason he did that is that he wants Shoigu, the Russian defense minister, and Gerasimov, the head of general staff, to take it over for for him. And I think he's counting on them actually losing Bakhmut uh, because he knows that the forces that are there um, that MOD has, Russian MOD has in that area are fairly exhausted, relatively weak. They've not had time 
to establish uh, strong defensive lines. And I think he's hoping that he can be seen as a savior from this whole experience because he can say to Putin and the Russian public that he's the one person that can accomplish a victory, that can take a city. And the minute he does and turns it over to the Russian military, they'll lose it. But did you interpret that? So I've been following the the Prigozhin-Shoigu situation. And what I can't tell is whether his withdrawal from Bakhmut was a an effort was sort of knowing that their temp, their stay there was going to be pretty temporary, wanting to be the one who took it, not also wanting to be the one who lost it, leave that to the Ministry of Defense Forces, or in the alternative, whether he is capable of holding it, but actually withdrew in order that the Ministry of Defense people who are less capable would uh, lose it and thereby set up him as a as a kind of hero. Is he stabbing them in the back or is he just seeing the writing on the wall here? I think he's stabbing in the back. Uh, and look, you know, the Wagner is not well established um, and organized for defensive operations. That's certainly the case. But the hastiness with which he withdrew, literally uh, starting withdrawal processes the day you've declared victory and completing them within a week and rushing to do it even sooner gives me quite a high degree of confidence that he's trying to set them up for failure. Because the right way to do that is to figure out where your defensive fortifications are going to be build them jointly with the Russian MOD, transfer things in an orderly fashion, and then leave, right? That's going to take weeks, maybe a month. He's not waiting for that. He is rushing out as soon as he can, by the way, driving over Russian uh, and, and placed mines on the way out of the city. And kidnapping and beating Russian, off- Russian officers along the way. That, that's right, that he says took shots at, at him and his forces. So there's no love loss for them, but on several occasions, he's hinted that not only does he think that Shoigu and Gerasimov are completely incompetent, that he would be a better choice for them. So I think this is in a way, you know, bureaucratic politics playing out on obviously a a battlefield to try to, one, get these guys fired and two, hopefully get himself into that job. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And I, I mean, my sense of the distances is that that theater is actually quite a ways away from the area that's affected 
by the the dam break, right? We're we're talking significantly north and and east of there. Yes, Ukraine is huge. It's the second largest country in Europe. This is very very far away. Um, so so the dam has no no implications on that. And by the way, Bakhmut by itself really is not a strategic. Uh, victory for for Russia, uh, having taken it. I mean, it's a step in stone on the way to other cities that they want to take in the Donbass, like Kramatorsk and Slavansk, but um, they don't have offensive capacity, certainly at the moment, to exploit that. So taking Bakhmut really doesn't give them anything. Uh, For the Ukrainians, Bakhmut also, you know, is now a completely destroyed city, but there is enormous political value that has now been attached to it. It's become the sort of Stalingrad of this war, and if the Ukrainians can quickly retake it after the Russians, you know, exhausted enormous amount of manpower and artillery munitions to take it in the first place over the course of many months, um, that can be an enormous propaganda victory for Ukraine. And they can use that to show off to their supporters in the West that see we're capable of executing operations much better than the Russians. We need more weapons. We need more support to keep going. So that, um, I think, holds uh, a really interesting potential for them for potentially establishing some wins early on. Because the reality is the southern offensive that is much more strategic with the goal of getting to the Sea of Azov to cut off that land corridor to Crimea is likely going to take a long time. They've begun it. Uh, It's been a couple of days, but they're you know, making very little progress so far. It's 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 hard slog, and they haven't even hit any of the entrenched fortifications, the trenches that the Russians have built out there. So, you know, it's possible that they'll get lucky and the Russians run and they achieve a quick breakthrough, but more likely than not, this is going to look a lot like Kherson, which, if you recall, took many, many months uh, before they were able to dislodge the Russians from there. And even then, the Russians did an orderly withdrawal with most of their force and uh, equipment intact across the river. So this is much more likely to play out more like Kherson than the way we've seen the Kharkiv offensive, which was a lightning 72-hour drive uh, across the entire oblast, primarily because there were very few Russian forces there and there were no fortifications that they had built up. This is going to be very likely very different. So you said earlier that uh, even without the flood, they weren't going to do a major amphibious attack across the river. Uh, looking at the map right now, there really is no way to do the southern offensive without crossing the river somewhere. Uh, you can do it way up north and then come down. Yeah, that's exactly where they, what they're doing. So they're, they're coming down from the north, uh, from uh, Zaporizhia the city and trying to go after Takmak and uh, in, in the West and, and then in the East um, they're, they're fighting near Vukhladar, uh, which is a gateway towards Berdansk and potentially even Mariupol. And um, it's, it's mostly a land-based campaign. So as the news focuses obsessively and in my opinion, rightly on the flood because of its humanitarian and ecological consequences, presumably all of that military action is unaffected by it and is taking place in the background. And we just went from talking about it a lot at the beginning of the week to not noticing it at all now. 
Yeah. And in fact, you know, I follow closely uh, battlefield reports, most of them on the Russian side, because the Ukrainians are keeping very good operational security and not really discussing what they're doing. But there's a lot of activity even today uh, across the entire front line. So the offensive has not paused uh, at all. So when the Ukrainians talk about this operation, they're talking about it as, you know, liberating as much of the occupied space as they can. And they uh, often for, uh, for communications reasons, you know, group Crimea in with everything else and, you know, don't treat the 2014 line as having any significance at all. And I'm completely sympathetic with that as a normative matter and as a political matter. But I also am aware that when you're planning a military campaign, you have uh, more precise strategic objectives than, uh, you know, liberate all the territory. And so I'm curious, uh, you know, what you think the actual objectives of this counteroffensive are and what the strategic purpose that the operation that started on Monday is, is, is going after. Yeah, Ben, this is really a terrific question, a $64,000 question. The Ukrainians have smartly not defined their objectives, so you can't accuse them of failing to achieve it because you don't know what they are. And one level, of course, it is to liberate all of their territory. And the way you do that is by liberating you know, it one village at a time. So to the extent that they take anything back, which, of course, they're probably very likely to do, it is helpful in that respect. The more they take back, again, the more they can show um, to the West that they're making progress and the investments that we're making in weapons and aid are delivering results uh, for the Ukrainians. But in terms of thinking about how you end this war, um, this is something that I struggle with because one of the things I think is not being discussed a lot is this idea that Ukraine can potentially take back everything, not just everything to the February 22 borders, but everything to the 2014 borders, Luhansk, Donetsk, Crimea included, and the war may not end. Because if you're Putin, who has turned this into an existential war, at least for his own survival and staying in power, why would you abandon it just because you've sustained some battlefield losses, right? Um, And to the extent that Ukrainians take this fight into Russian territory, then you can do much more politically in terms of mobilizing a much bigger force. And even then, uh, potentially even nuclear weapons are on the table because Russian doctrine says that if uh, if Russian territory itself is threatened, then they can use nuclear weapons even against only conventional threat. And when you think about it from a Ukrainian perspective of how do you change that dynamic, one answer may be that you're able to get to the Sea of Azov, you're able to cut off this land corridor to Crimea. And not only are you cutting that off and making resupplying Crimea more difficult, although there's still ferries that are able to resupply Crimea and some traffic going across the Kerch Bridge that was hit last year. But now you can have most of Crimea, if not all of Crimea, depending on how far they get, in range of even their existing uh, weapons, the uh, Gimlers that they use in HIMARS, and then the GSLDB bombs that have longer range that they're going to get in a few months um, that we've already committed to supplying them that can be used in HIMARS as well. 
And now you can um, threaten major logistics, both military and frankly, civilian logistics across Crimea, um, right? You can start hitting the bridge again, trying to destroy it. You can start hitting the ferries and the landing points. You can start hitting the, the bases, the military bases in Crimea. And that can help you gain leverage. It's risky because it can provoke, you know, major retaliation from Russia, potentially nuclear, although I think the likelihood of that is still quite low. But you may be able to get Putin to start thinking, oh, my God, I may actually lose Crimea. Maybe it's actually time to negotiate and end this thing. So that might be one of the hopes that they have. They may not have, of course, this plan you know, exactly written down and outlined the way I'm, I'm saying, because I, I know many in Ukraine still harbor hope that they can take back Crimea entirely. I just fear, you know, the consequences, not necessarily of taking Crimea itself, but what does that mean for the continuation of this conflict? How does it actually end? How do you get Putin to stop? And he certainly still has plenty of people that he can mobilize. Russian military production has been impacted somewhat by sanctions, but they can still manufacture millions of artillery shells. Um, they're still manufacturing barrels to replace their worn out barrels. So their ability to keep hitting Ukraine with long range missiles or Iranian drones will be sustained for likely a very, very long time. So how this war ends, I think, is, is a really important question for everyone involved, of course, first and foremost, Ukraine. And the NATO um, discussions play into that as well, because uh, for now, it seems like any membership of Ukraine and NATO while the war is going on uh, is off the table. But if there's a strong commitment that the minute the war ends, that Ukraine will join NATO, that actually creates a perverse incentive for Putin to keep the war going, right? Uh, because it'll prevent Ukraine from joining NATO. And I'm not saying, of course, that NATO is the only reason he invaded Ukraine. Uh, I reject Mearsheimer's argument on this point, but it has some role to play. And it certainly as a rallying point for the Russian public, it is an effective tool to use as well. Joining us to talk about that incredible Washington Post story is Shane Harris, who needs no introduction to Lawfare listeners. Shane, welcome to the show. So Shane, just as the Russians are apparently, or somebody is apparently uh, blowing up the uh, dam on the Dnipro, uh, the, you guys ran a story that said that the last time that we uh, all thought the Russians had blown something up, it was actually the Ukrainians who blew something up. Uh, this isn't a total surprise because uh, you guys had run some stories before that had suggested that the assumed Russian attack on the uh, Nord Stream 2 pipeline last summer, uh, that there wasn't really any evidence that had materialized uh, to support that. But what have we now learned? Right. And I should say our decision to run this story at the time the dam broke, that was coincidental, despite what much of Twitter thinks that we were, you know, holding it for an opportune moment. Journalism doesn't work that way. Um, so what we know um, <clears throat> is that in June of 2022, a European intelligence service shared with the CIA um, reporting that it thought was reliable from an individual in Ukraine 
which said that the Ukrainian armed forces, specifically its special operations forces, had planned to bomb or attack the Nord Stream pipeline using a team of six divers who planned to rent a boat, go down to the floor of the Baltic Sea and damage or destroy the pipeline and escape undetected. And the European service shared that with the CIA, which looked at it, was not immediately able to corroborate it, was a bit skeptical of it for reasons that we can get into in a bit if you want, but then shared that information with Germany, shared it with other European intelligence services. That plan ultimately was not carried out, but now, of course, we know that later in September, attackers, saboteurs did blow up the Nord Stream pipeline. And what subsequent investigation by Germany has shown is that the number of people in that attack, the way that it was done, bear striking similarities to what the European intelligence service three months earlier had said Ukraine was plotting. And by Ukraine, specifically, what the reporting said was the uh, commander-in-chief of the Iranian armed forces, General Valery Zeluzhny, who was reportedly in charge of the operation directly, uh, which was designed to keep President Zelensky out of the loop, presumably, so he could have some plausible deniability. So you're right to say that there have been indications, and we've reported a bit of this too, of suspicion falling on Ukraine. This is the most detailed information I think we've seen to date that attributes this attack directly to the Ukrainian military with a high degree of specificity. Okay, so I have about a million questions about this. (laughs) The first is uh, just a journalism craft story, often you guys cannot talk a lot about your sources in a story like this. In this case, your story, your source, your principal source is super clear, which is that at least as I read the story, this comes from the material that uh, Mr. Teixeira, the Discord leaker, dumped on this uh, Discord server and stole. So this has been kind of available since the time of the Discord leaks. Is that is that right? I wouldn't say it's been available since the time of the Discord leaks, um, <clears throat> but this information did come to us via the same source stream, let's say, um, of information where we obtained um, you know, hundreds of the documents that we've been reporting on now for months. But yes, I mean, but I would not <clears throat> say it all came at once. Let's just put it that way. So, so, so it's fair to say that the 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 chain, without getting into the specifics of the chain of custody of individual documents, the sourcing of this material. I mean, obviously, you do corroboration. There's lots of communications that the story refers to where you're checking things with intelligence sources, etc. But the core of the information is somebody writes an intel uh, uh, an intelligence report or a report, a, a, a classified document, summarizing this uh, or containing this information, and Jack Teixeira purloins it among the other materials uh, and removes it from the classified arena, and one way or another, that as part of this cache of hundreds of documents makes its way to you guys. Is that is that a reasonable summary 
Yeah, that's right. And then, you know, and as we, you know, and we've been going through these documents <clears throat> for quite some time, and it can often take a long time, you know, sometimes weeks to actually then report out the information. So, you know, in this case, we're not simply taking the document and reporting it as it says, <clears throat> you know, just what it says credulously. We take that, we, you know, we've done frankly, weeks of reporting uh, in lots of countries to try and corroborate and get more information about what exactly this thing was saying uh, and get it to the point where we felt that we could run it. it the reader can, you know, uh, infer, but I'll just say it explicitly, that, you know, multiple countries saw everything that was in that document that we planned to report. So we did not, you know, hide anything from anyone. We were explicit in everything that it said. Uh, and that's part of the way that we were able to corroborate and why we said that the information that's in the document is accurately what was transmitted by the European agency to the CIA and then shared with other agencies. Yeah. And just to be clear, the uh, this is one of the things that separates a first-rate news organization from you know, the Julian Assange's of the world or the Jack Teixeira's of the world. It's not simply a data dump of raw material. It's there's a huge amount of corroboration and assessment of the material here and vetting. But I, I wanted, I do want to come back to the fact the core of this story is not some secret sources said. The core of the story is, hey, Three months before this attack, the U.S. was given information according to its own uh, documents that presaged the attack very specifically and predicted or or described it as a Ukrainian operation reporting to the head of the Ukrainian military. Yes, that's right. I mean, <clears throat> and I think that, you know, and what it's important to remember in that too, a couple things, you know, one, just to dispel, again, commentary that swirls on social media, making it sound like this is some kind of deliberate leak by an intelligence agency to, you know, prominent journalist that's, you know, timed so and so. No, that's not the case at all. I, I guarantee you the United States government and the European intelligence agency in question um, did not want this information to become public. And we actually, and we say this in the story, agreed to withhold certain details that are in that report um, that are, you know, objectively sensitive. I mean, there are things that I looked at in the report as we read it <clears throat> that I immediately knew would be of great concern to government officials where they made public. And they made a very persuasive case that some of these things would be best not made public because of threat to operations and to sources. But yeah, I mean, this is, you know, information that the CIA had. And, and I should say that, you know, at the time, you know, the, the reason why U.S. officials were initially skeptical of this was not, as I understand it, because they thought, oh, well, Ukraine could never do something like this or would never do it. It was rather that the individual in Ukraine that was the main source for the European intelligence agency had not really demonstrated yet a reliable track record of reporting. So you can kind of think of this as a source where the CIA looks at it and says, okay, maybe, but we're not really sure this person 
um, is authoritative uh, on the question and yet does share it with Germany, where, of course, the Nord Stream pipeline terminates and is a major partner of the Nord Stream consortium, if you like, and shares it with other agencies as well. So there, there's enough specificity and concern in it that I suppose, at least out of an abundance of caution, the Americans share it with others. And the European agency that originated the reporting also shared it directly with Germany, we're told. What we don't know, and it's a really important question that the document does not speak to is after the CIA received this information, did they or any other U.S. officials or any other government go to Ukraine and say, hey, we've come into this information that says your military is planning a sabotage of the Nord Stream pipeline. We thought you should know or please don't do that. Or why do you want to do that? Is this true? We just don't know if any of those conversations happened. All the document says, and it's ambiguous on this actually, is that the operation was put on hold. And it's that I assume is Jack Teixeira actually relaying that information probably more than a document that says put on hold um, because it looks like he's actually summarizing in some parts here of the, of, of the reporting. It's not clear what that means. It's not clear why. Um, the original plan reportedly was for the Ukrainians to carry out this operation just after the Balt Ops uh, exercise, which is this big multinational military naval exercise in the Black Sea, which was due to end around the middle of June. It's just not clear if you know if that has anything to do with it or what. But what is you know so striking is that except for some particulars which you know we didn't include in the story because they were sensitive, the core thrust of the operation: six people using diving equipment, using a rented boat, using a submersible bears. It just lines up with what the German law enforcement investigation is saying that they're finding, um, minus the part about the submersible. But they have found six people with ties to Ukraine. They found rented a boat and sailed out of Germany in September. So, you know, they line up. What we don't know is what happened in that interim period between early June when the information is generated Somehow the operation is put on hold and then the eventual strike happens in late September. Okay, so there's something else I don't understand about this, which is that this reporting exists from June. Then the attack happens and U.S. intelligence seems genuinely befuddled or unsure for a good long time about who was responsible for it. And there are statements that uh, from uh, officials that, you know, seem to lay the blame at Russia, but there's no kind of back channeling to the press that, hey, our internal assessment is that this may have been a Ukrainian operation. And that yet they're sitting on this document that reflects prior knowledge of a quite similar looking operation. And so my question is, did they genuinely not know? Were they covering for the Ukrainians? What's the explanation here? They definitely were not unaware of it. I don't know whether they were covering. I don't know whether there was a kind of I'm purely imagining here because the short answer to your question is I do not know. And it's a great question. And we put that question to the White House and to and to other government officials. 
I do wonder if some people kind of looked around and said, oh, crap, maybe they actually did this. But, you know, hey, we weren't really sure the initial reporting was totally reliable or totally credible. Let's not jump to conclusions. Maybe this is something different. You know, maybe Russia did have a motive to attack the pipeline. Like there's one thing I found that is sort of striking, and we've reported this throughout this entire period since the Nord Stream sabotage, is officials seem to not want to look into it too hard, right? Germany is mounting a law enforcement investigation that does seem pretty aggressive. Sweden has its own investigation. But among intelligence officials in several countries I've spoken to, there's just kind of this attitude of, well, let's just kind of let the investigation play out. And I think part of that is because People do suspect very strongly that it's Ukraine uh, and that was behind this and that that is a very uncomfortable outcome if that is the case because what does the United States and its allies then do? Do they admonish Ukraine? Do they have to punish Ukraine? Do they say Ukraine has to pay to repair the pipeline to the tune of half a billion dollars? You know, as time has gone on, I talked to one senior intelligence official overseas recently who told me privately, look, you know, Everyone just kind of is moving on from this. It happened a long time ago. It's in the past. And there's this kind of desire, I think, to let it be, you know, kind of water under the bridge. I mean, Germany certainly knows this information and it's finding it in its own law enforcement investigation. They're still supplying weapons to Ukraine. They gave tanks to Ukraine. So, you know, even the more, the more than suspicion, the, you know, the, the evidence, although perhaps not like totally conclusive evidence that's mounting of Ukraine's involvement has obviously not stopped its allies from supplying it with weapons and and more weapons than it you know are, did in the beginning. So it's fascinating to me, you know, what what has gone on here? Has everyone just kind of agreed not to talk about Nord Stream and, and sort of move on from it? I don't know. And I suspect that we might learn that down the road. But right now, that's, a, that's another big question mark in the investigation. So the Nord Stream operation, assuming it was in fact the Ukrainians, is the first of a series of covert intelligence operations or covert military operations by the Ukrainians that have sort of crossed U.S. red lines. They also, of course, famously killed uh, Ms. Dugina, trying to get her father. Uh, They killed that military blogger. And there have been these drones, you know, near the Kremlin or crashing into the Kremlin, crashing into some civilian buildings in Moscow as well. And all of that seems to me to be the sort of children of this operation in the sense that there, there does seem to be a I don't know if it's a modus vivendi, but a a set of understandings between the U.S. and the Ukrainians that run something like this. Uh, The Ukrainians breach lines. We either don't say anything or cluck at them, and we don't encourage it, but we don't really exert leverage to stop it either. Is that how we should read these uh, that our principal interest is not that they don't happen, but that they don't get tagged to U.S. support for Ukraine. I think that's right. I think that is a fair way to read it. That is how I read it. 
when I've talked to Ukrainian officials, and particularly on the intelligence side of things, and you know about operations that have been, you know, that Ukraine is suspected of having done inside Russia, but you know, it's kind of a wink and a nod, and it's not overtly attributed to them. You know, they'll say basically, you know, we understand that there are certain things that we can do with U.S. supplied weapons, and we can't do with U.S. weapons. We can't use U.S. weapons to attack inside Russia, but we can attack inside Russia. In the beginning of the war. <clears throat> the U.S. regarded attacks like that, like the Dugina one especially, the, where it was meant, I think, a car bombing that was meant for her father, um, who was a big Putin supporter. I think they looked at those and worried that it was that kind of provocative action that was going to ignite the dreaded escalation cycle that Washington feared would then lead to a direct conflict between the United States and NATO and Russia. As time has gone on and as Ukraine has mounted more of these attacks and Putin has not responded at that kind of, you know, doomsday level, though he has clearly stepped up attacks on, you know, civilians in Ukraine, I think probably in reprisal, I think the United States tolerance on the escalation question has 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 increased and you no longer hear people kind of openly fretting that if the Ukrainians push Russia too far, Putin will use a tactical nuclear weapon. I think that's part of what's going on here is that the, the, the Ukrainians have basically demonstrated how far they can go without the United States both pulling them back entirely and without Putin doing something, you know, even more dreadful than he has. Um, there have been instances, though, where the United States, and we've reported on these too based on the Discord leaks, has stepped in and pulled Ukraine back. For instance, there was an operation that the Ukrainian military intelligence directorate wanted to launch to coincide with the first anniversary of the of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, where they would launch strikes on Moscow, Ukraine would. And at Washington's request, according to intelligence documents we saw, the Ukrainians agreed not to do that. So there are instances clearly where Washington does exert some leverage or influence over Ukraine the reasons for it are not always clear. I mean, in that instance, was it, you know, hey, this is not really a smart thing to do right now versus, um, you know, we're worried this could escalate versus, hey, need operation, but why don't you do it in a month? We just don't know the answer to that. But the anxiety level has, you know, clearly diminished on the part of Ukraine's allies for when they go about doing these operations. That said, I can't imagine that the United States would be all that happy about Ukraine blowing up the Nord Stream pipeline. I don't think the Biden administration cried many tears when Nord Stream has been taken offline, but that is not an attack on Russia. That's an attack on civilian infrastructure, which is, you know, partly owned by the countries that are supplying Ukraine with weapons. One last question, circling back to the dam blowing up. Everybody today is assuming that this was a Russian operation to blow up this dam. Uh, I cannot imagine a reason why the Ukrainians would want to do that. But, you know, the last time we had a, you know, set of confident conversations about the Russians likely being behind something was this Nord Stream 2 attack. And the uh, skeptics were uh, were right, or at least it seems to have been a Ukrainian operation now. So tell me how that changes your instincts about how to assess, if at all, 
uh, how to assess likely responsibility in the case of the dam. I do think it is genuinely too early to know. And sources we've been talking to in the U.S. say that it's still too soon to say who blew up the dam. I am inclined to think it was Russia for, I think, the reason that you were, were getting at, which is that, you know, this rupture is going to have, you know, devastating consequences for Ukrainian people. The Nord Stream sabotage did not. Ukrainians were not injured by the Nord Stream explosions. Their lives were not made worse. There was actually no natural gas being supplied by the Nord Stream pipelines at the time. They were ruptured. Nord Stream 1, Gazprom have shut off the flow of that. And Nord Stream 2 was not finally authorized because Germany decided not to give the final authorization on the eve of the war. So while I think it is seemingly likely that Ukraine did this audacious attack on a big piece of civilian infrastructure with Nord Stream. Um, I don't think that means they're, therefore they must have done another big attack on civilian infrastructure, i.e. the dam, because the dam blowing up makes life terrible for Ukrainian people. And terrible uh, and for the, the Ukrainian Ukra military, which has to cross that river and, yes, you know, if it's going to liberate that territory. So it's 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 a military obstacle as well as a civilian and ecological catastrophe. Precisely. So I, I think that, you know, you're, you're, all signs would point to Russia in this. It's worth remembering that the reason why so many people suspected Russia was behind Nord Stream in the beginning, and frankly, I suspect that they were probably behind it too, and many U.S. officials said so publicly, is it seemed to line up with a strategy that Russia had pursued and seemed willing to pursue, which was sort of trying to hold the West hostage with energy or to use energy and, and natural gas as kind of a weapon to blackmail um, the West and basically say, hey, you know, we are prepared to go around, you know, months before winter sets in, cutting off your supplies to energy if you continue your support for Ukraine. Now, there were reasons at the time why that didn't like make a lot of sense either, but Russia seemed the more likely culprit if you were lining them up against Ukraine. There were also people who questioned whether Ukraine even had the capability to pull off something like this. In the case of the dam, I just don't have those same questions. I mean, it, it it's it's kind of an Occam's razor thing with the dam. Blowing up the dam favors Russian interests much more than it favors Ukrainian interests. So I suspect that, you know, and certainly my sources I've talked to suspect that Russia is probably the one behind it. Uh, we're going to leave it there. Shane Harris, Eric Charmella, Dmitry Alperovich, thank you all so much for joining us today. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode is Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Folks, I know I say it all the time, but this time I really mean it. If you are not a material supporter of Lawfare, you need to become one. Go to patreon.com slash lawfare, sign up. You will not hear our ads and you will know that you are among the virtuous. The Lawfare podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by the one, the only Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.